0: So how are you? You're well? Excellent, excellent. Um, two things I would like to say before we start. Um, Isaac and Olivia were married yesterday and we had a, um, it was one of those, it was, it was just, we just had a, it was, look, every wedding is precious, I know, you know but it was just such a beautiful Wedding. It really was. It was. Um, you know what was beautiful about it. What was really beautiful about it was there was, you know, Isaac's family here and Olivia's family here. You know how we do that, you know, but you but you realised immediately that they're two Christian families, and here are two Christian kids who are who have have you know who believe that the Lord has brought them together, and uh, and are praising God for it and uh, and doing it God's way, and it's just it's just glorious to see, isn't it? you know because you know because you know that as yeah they came into this room as two individuals but you know according to God's word that he has made them one flesh and they walked out of this room they walked down this aisle as one flesh as Mr and Mrs Daw, and you know that because they are God's children that God, this this pathway here I said to them, that is sacred ground right there in a sense because in that place, the pathway that God has for you began. And they walked out that, down that hall, out of that room, at the beginning of the course that God has established for them, we believe, before all eternity, before time and matter began. Isn't that right? Because he knew us back then, didn't he? And what a glorious truth it is. And what a glorious hope it is to be able to see them go and know they're in God's hands. I, I just loved it. Just loved it. The other thing I want to tell you this morning is that um, she's not here she was here in the first service and that is my niece. Uh, Manice is leaving uh, moving to Mandra. Um Manice if you don't know has been a part of the she's one of the youth leaders um, and she's just she's just she's just a beautiful godly lady. You know, and, um, and she's been this incredible example to the young girls of what it is to be a Christian woman, to, again, to be doing it God's way. And so I, we reluctantly, we reluctantly sort of said goodbye this morning. But do pray for, for um, Manice and uh, Regis, her fiance. Oh, is he her fiancé yet, Steve? Are they engaged? Anyway... Pray for Manice and Regis. Um, uh, she's gone up there for, up there for work, so, um, but uh, as, as I said to her this morning, you know, there's a, there's a cord attached. <laughs> it's a bit like a fishing line. <laughs> We're not letting go, no. Pray that God will bless them and he will. So think of Marnice in your prayers. Certainly think of Isaac and, and Olivia in your prayers. And, uh, and um, let's begin, shall we? Uh, well, um, if you're a visitor this morning, um, we have been in. Well, since the lockdown began, we've been we've been we've gone through three series, which really has been one series, and um, in it and through it, you know, we developed as a church. We developed somewhat of a confession and that confession has become our prayer and so shall we pray our prayer together would you bow your heads with me and bow your hearts before him heavenly father we thank you that you are our god and that we are your children We thank you, Father, that you guide us according to your truth. We thank you for the truth that's in Christ, your son, and the truth that is revealed through your precious word. And we thank you, Father, that you would call us to be a people of prayer, a people who are so dependent, earnestly, wholeheartedly, desiring your presence, your purpose, and your blessing in all the areas of our life. We thank you, Father, that you would just draw us near, draw us into that intimacy together. And we pray, Lord God, in this relationship you would search our hearts you would search our hearts Father you would change us and you would expose anything that needs to be dealt with Lord we open and we give ourselves to you afresh restore us keep us from the things Lord God that keep us from you and may O oh precious God that wonderful gospel message that saves transforms and glorifies lives Lord may it May it work in us. May it shape us. May it be the most important message to our hearts. And may it be the most important thing that we have to give to this, to this dying world. Lord, let it move our hearts. Let the gospel message shape our lives. For Father, we confess before you again today that we are not satisfied with a complacent spirituality that produces no living for Christ. Lord, we're finished with careless living. We want a faith of substance that takes us beyond the walls of this church and actually gives us something to say to this world of eternal value, Lord. Lord, we're ready and we're willing to exchange any and all self-indulgence for a self-denying, life-transforming Christianity. Father, what we are saying this morning is simply that we are ready to live for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Do you like our prayer? I love our prayer. Let it be our heart's cry. This morning, I am going to make, I'm going to make a leap. Um which will seem like a change in direction where we have been for these past umpteen, seems for a long time now, but it's far from a change. We have in the past five weeks been looking at the, if you're a visitor this morning, we've been looking at the beseech thee statements of the Apostle Paul. He said, I beseech thee therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. He said, I beseech ye that we would speak the same things and that there would be no division amongst us. He said, I beseech ye that you would work walk worthy of the vocation wherein you have been called. He said, I beseech ye, imitate me, the Apostle Paul would say, even as I imitate Christ. He would say, I beseech ye that you do not receive the grace of God in vain. Here's my question this morning. What is the sum of it all? What's the sum of it all? You know, for the past five weeks, I say again, we have been listening to the pleading heart of the Apostle Paul for us to become all that God wants us to be. And prior to that, we spent eight weeks asking the question, well, how does the gospel of Jesus Christ look in our lives? How does it shape us? How does it make us a church that is alive to this world? And prior to that, I think we spent six weeks asking the question, asking God to show us how we might experience personal revival been great studies you know I don't mind saying I preach to myself more than I preach to you and they've been great studies but I have to ask myself now after all these weeks what is the sum of it all what's the sum of it all and you know here's my conclusion well actually before I say the conclusion you know we could say We could say, yeah, they were great studies and just keep rolling on the way that we've always rolled on. You know that saying, rolling just to keep on rolling but never changing? We could could do that or or what? Do, Do I expect that our lives will be radically changed? Immediately I go, yes, right? Do I expect our life to be radically changed? Do I expect all of you to become spiritual giants? You know, to become the next Edwards or Whitfield or Moody or or the next Graham? Is that what I expect? You know, not overnight, right? But, But I do want to see us alive. You know, I do want to see us spiritually alive. I want to see us deeply in love with Jesus Christ. I want to see us hungering and thirsting after righteousness, unashamedly, unashamedly unashamedly professing salvation in Jesus Christ's name, living lives shaped by and for his gospel. I want us to have a passion and a confidence in the word of God that will not be shaken. I want every one of us to be God's spiritual foot soldiers fulfilling the purpose for which he has called us and saved us for. Now I do, but still my question remains... What have the last 18 weeks been about? What's the sum of it all? Well, well here's, here's my conclusion. And it's very simple. It's simply this. It's never too late. You know that? It's never too late. What do I mean by that? It's never too late to turn from a wrong path to see your destiny changed. It's never too late to repent and avoid an even greater disaster that the course we're on might be leading us into. It's never too late to discover God's faithfulness to the greatness of his promises in his word to his people. It's never too late to discover the truth of God. It's never too late to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. It's never, never too late. Now, having said all of that, and this is where my leap, here's my leap. That we're going to take. And it might sound like, in fact, it is an oxymoron, what I'm about to say. No, it's never too late, but the day will come when God will say, Time enough. Time enough. Now, from the perspective, here's the leap from the perspective of humanity, that time will be the day of the Lord, won't it? It's the day of the Lord. You know, And it's not a small subject in the Scriptures. It's not a small subject at all. I think people are afraid to talk about it. I, I honestly think that preachers are afraid actually to preach about it. And that's not what I'm here to preach about this morning. Having said that, but it's not a small subject. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Zephaniah, Zechariah, Malachi, Acts 1 2 Corinthians, 1 2 Thessalonians, 2 Peter, Revelation. It all speaks about the day of the Lord. Not a small subject. Ultimately, it's the time when God will say to humanity, in all of his rebellion, he's going to say, Time enough. Time enough for mankind's rebellion. Time enough for the wickedness of man's hatred of greed and pride and idolatries and adulteries and murders and fornications. Time enough, God's going to say. For the scripture clearly tells us that those things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And the day of the Lord is simply when God says, It's time, enough time. He will intervene decisively in human history. The presence of the Almighty will totally dominate humanity's reign of rejection and it will pale by comparison to the reality of who He is. You know what? In that day, no one is going to be saying, you prove to me that God exists. Not in that day. Let me read you some verses. On that day, here's Isaiah 13. says in verse 6, Woe for the day of the Lord is at hand. It will come as a destruction from the Almighty. And verse 7, All hands will go limp. Every man's heart will melt. And it goes, even the cosmos itself will be in convulsions on that day. I think Revelation chapter 7 speaks about it. Isaiah goes on to speak about it. In verse 10 of that same chapter, chapter 12, He says, For the stars of heaven and the constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened and it's going forth and the moon will not cause its light to shine. The New Testament, speaking about the day of the Lord, connects it to the return of Jesus Christ. Peter, in his second epistle, just, I think it's ominous, just ominously says, it's the day of God, the day of God, Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 12. And then he goes on to describe what is the climax of, of, of human history when he talks about its destruction, when he says the heavens will be dissolved with being on fire and the elements will melt with, with fervent heat. The presence of the Almighty will bring all things under or up to their ultimate conclusion. Some things unto eternal judgment. Yet others, as Peter would say, and I love what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3, nevertheless we, and this includes you and I, we, according to his promise, look for the new heavens and the new earth wherein dwells... What? What? righteousness righteousness bible says it'll be a time of decision the day of the lord joel is where i want to ultimately have you this morning but joel depicts this in the third chapter and says multitudes it's a time of decision multitudes multitudes in the valley of decision for the day of the lord is near in the valley of decision God will render his verdict and divine judgment will be executed. Isaiah chapter 2 will describe the decision that God will render against everything that has exalted itself up against who God is, the knowledge of God and the purpose of God. Everything... Everything proud, in fact. He says there in verse 12 For the day of the Lord of hosts shall come upon everything proud and lofty, upon everything lifted up, and it shall be brought low. The loftiness of man shall be bowed down, and the haughtiness of man shall be brought low. The Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. So it's coming. God will act. God will decide, nations will be judged, while others will enter into the blessedness of his salvation, the blessedness of his kingdom. And the prophet Joel mentions this. Actually, the prophet Joel refers to the day of the Lord, in his short book, refers to the day of the Lord five times in his writings. And this is the perspective this morning that I want us, Where I'm going to be speaking from this morning here it is now, everything, and the reason, I'm, reason I'm, I'm going here is because the perspective that we see in the people of God in the time of Joel, it's exactly the same today in the people of God. It hasn't changed, you know. In Joel's time, Israel anticipated um, that God's coming would be a wondrous time, a glorious time. And certainly we understand that. They thought it's going to be a time of great light. You know why? Because this, is their, this was their attitude. Because they genuine, genuinely believed that when God comes, when the day of the Lord comes, everybody else out there is going to get theirs. In fact, genuine, their general motivation towards the coming of the Lord was everybody that's not them is going to get theirs. is going to get theirs. Their basic position was simply this, that they alone had possession of God's truth and everyone else was damned. Everyone else was lost. God made his covenant with them and that's all that mattered to them. You know, the fact that they were worshipping idols, the fact that they were disregarding God's commands, the fact that they were living like the unbelievers didn't matter to them. They were God's chosen people, and everybody else was just on a slow roast. That's all that mattered to them. Now, now please, with all that in mind, I want to read something to you. It's a quote. I want to read this to you. It says, It's amazing how long-held beliefs, however ill-founded, can often supplant the truth. This is talking about heresy. If repeated often enough, it becomes orthodoxy. It becomes accepted as truth. And the truth, through lack of rehearsal and practice, becomes untruth. Do you hear what he's saying? Do you hear what he's saying? Let me read it again. It is amazing how long-held beliefs, however ill-founded, can often supplant the truth. Heresy, if repeated often enough, becomes orthodoxy. It becomes accepted as truth. And the truth, through lack of rehearsal and practice, becomes untruth. Yes. Yes, Israel, we're in covenant with Almighty God. But the covenant was... In effect, to identify them as God's people by virtue of the fact that they serve a holy God. They were to reflect the holiness of God. He said in Deuteronomy chapter 7, you are a holy people to the Lord your God. And Isaiah again, chapter 43, is not talking to the Jehovah Witnesses. He's talking to Israel. It says, you are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servants whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he before me, there was no God formed, nor shall there be after me, I, am, I even I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Saviour, I have declared and saved. I have proclaimed and there was no foreign gods amongst you. Therefore, you are my witnesses, says the Lord, that I am God. They were to be a witness to the world that the one true God is holy. They were to be God's invitation to the world. You know what? That's you today. We serve a holy God, a righteous God. And just like Israel back then, we are to be the invitation to the world to a holy God. So how does that affect their lives way back then? Well, they lived unholy lives. They worshipped multiple gods. But still their hearts cried out, we are the chosen people of God. We're the secure people of God. And that's what they kept telling themselves. They told themselves. It didn't matter that they live like the rest of the heathens out there. We are God's people. We are the people of the promise. And everyone else is only ever here to serve and to fuel the fires of hell. That's what everybody else is here. And generation after generation after generation after generation, they told themselves that. They told themselves that. And heresy became truth to them. You know what they were doing? They were rolling just to keep on rolling. And the truth of God couldn't change them. And they became self indulgent. They became smug. They became self satisfied. And they were completely judgmental. Here's a list of words that describes what they were like they were uninterested, they were indifferent. They were unconcerned. They were unmoved. They were unresponsive. They were impassive. They were detached. They were, they were dis, disinterested. They were lukewarm. They were uncaring. And they were not committed. They didn't care about the dying world. And they didn't care about how they lived. Why? Because they're God's chosen people. You know, we're going to heaven, we're okay, and you're, well, I really don't care, not really interested, no enthusiasm, no concern. You know what it's called? It's called apathy. It's apathy in the people of God. They'd slipped into this state of complacency and apathy about the things of God. You know what? And, it's a, and, and it just grieves our heart to say that exact same apathy is in the body of Christ today. That's why I say, Joel, the believers are just the same as today the believers are. You know? So to shake them, to shake them and to wake them up, To get their attention, God allows, now we're back in the time of Joel, God allows this incredible plague of locusts to devour the land. The land was ruined. Everything green was gone. Every branch, every trunk of every tree, everything was stripped clean. Then fire broke out and whatever was left was destroyed. The cattle and the sheep were perishing. The vineyards were laid waste. The temple sacrifices stopped because there was nothing to sacrifice. Even the drunks were left drying out in the streets because there was no fruit of the vine. And in this state of devastation, God was speaking to his people. He was saying, this is a warning. This is a warning because in the Old Testament prophecy, there's always the near and the far fulfillment. And he was using that experience to speak to them to say, hey, this is what the day of the Lord's going to be like. You know what he was saying? This is what the day of the Lord's going to be like, and you are not ready. What's the sum of it all? Are we ready? You are not ready for my coming. That's what he was saying. Amos, another Old Testament prophet, he said to them, this is Amos chapter 5, he says in verse 18, Woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord. To what end is it for you? The day of the Lord is darkness. It's not light. As if a man did flee from a lion and a bear then met him. Here's the thinking of what Amos is saying. Amos is saying that they're not ready. He's saying the same thing. You're not ready. The Jew believed that that because he was a Jew that it didn't really matter how he lived. And many Christians live like this. Because he was a Jew, it didn't matter how he lived. So, so again, many believers living this way. Amos then says to this, this attitude towards life, if life, this life is tough and you are just thinking, you know, and you're, let me start again. If this life is tough and it feels like you're always running from a lion, don't take any comfort looking forward to the next life because it's going to be like running from a lion, escaping the lion, getting around the corner and being confronted by a bear. It's going to get worse. You know, here's the thing. Someone said this. They said, too many people place their trust in the idea of God rather than the God of the idea. Do you know what I mean by that? We all have these ideas about God, trendy ideas that make God palatable to our varying degrees of carnality. Isn't that right? Today's about honesty. We know in our heads, and yes, we know in our hearts, that God intends us or would have us to be vibrantly alive, have a vibrant faith. That he wants us to be the hands of Christ to this world. That he wants us, he wants us to be his witnesses in this world of a holy God. Of a righteous God. But if our idea of God has become a Sunday worship service. Or if my idea of God is that God is a God who's there to make me happy and wants to pay my bills and wants to keep me from getting a cold. Or if my idea of God is some ever-changing ecstatic experience that divorces itself from the authority of Scripture. Or if my idea of God knows nothing of holiness, nothing about servanthood, nothing about denial of self and spiritual growth. If my idea of God is not rooted in a hungering and a desire to know Him and to be like Him, if we're not broken by our sin, people, if we're not broken by our sin and humbled by His mercy, if we're not in awe of His majesty, then like the children of Israel, we're not ready for His coming. We're just not ready for His coming. Please understand, I'm not saying these things to condemn. But at the end of this long series, I can't preach all of these messages, all of these weeks, and not to see a spark fly in our hearts. I can't do this and not expect it to fan our hearts towards an absolute surrender to this holy God. We need to know that this apathy, that this lukewarmness, it reduces our witness of God to nothing more generally than a curiosity out there. And they go, oh, well, you know, he's a good guy, but he's, he, he's just, just, a, just a weird Christian. And that's what we become, you know. We need to be holy. It's never changed. Since Adam and Eve walked in the garden to today until the time that Jesus returns, the issue's never going to change. We're called to be holy. We need to be bold. We need to be vibrant about Jesus. We need to have this heart-filled passion. We need to stop being a casual observer and to become a fervent participator in the kingdom thing. What is that kingdom thing? where God is working in your heart. We need to be concerned about eternity and eternal things. Joel says in chapter 2, first verse, he says, Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm in my holy mountain." Lord let all the inhabitants of the land tremble why for the day of the Lord is coming it is at hand and if it was at hand in the time of Joel how much closer are we to the day of the Lord we know we're in the last days right we are no we know that his hand his coming is at hand we know it in our hearts and he describes it there way back then and then he goes on in the next Ten verses to describe the horror of what it's going to be like, ultimately saying, who can endure it? No man of flesh and blood can endure it. But then, God always brings his light. He always brings his hope. But then, verse 12, he says, now therefore... It's one of the greatest now, therefores in the scripture. You know that? Now, therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your hearts, with fasting and with weeping and with mourning. So rent your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful. He is slow to anger and of a great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. You know what I love? I really love about this now, therefore, in verse 12. What I love about it is that it's there. Because when I look around this world, I know the world that we live in is the world as it was described by Isaiah. When Isaiah said that the world would call evil good and good evil. We know that's the world today. It's everywhere. Can I read you something? It's... It's another preacher's words, forgive me, it's stolen property, but he said it so well, so well. He said this, we are living in a society that protects the wicked and punishes the righteous. We are living in a world where fear has replaced faith, sin has replaced sanity, greed has replaced good God, sorry, and hatred has replaced holiness. You can see it in our homes, you can see it in our population, you can see it in our streets, you can see it in all of our entertainment and most most devastating of all, you can see it in our churches preachers have been replaced by praise songs. Holiness has given way to happiness. Commitment has been replaced by complacency. Our pews are full, but our altars are empty. We get more excited about a shopping trip than we do about revival meeting. We wink at sin. We wince at the holy demands of God. We have lost our fire, our power, and our desire for the things of God. We would rather play than pray. We would rather have our ears tickled than our hearts searched by the word we would rather be entertained than challenged we would rather stay like we are than become more like him we're just rolling to keep on rolling enticing not enticing indicting words aren't they they really are but Joel this is what I love about it Joel reminds us now therefore right now Even if the very core of the heart is rotten. Even if that's where we're at. Even then, even now, we can turn to God with all of our hearts. And He receives us. Again, Joel 2 verse 13. He said, rent what? He said, rent your hearts, not your garments. And turn unto the Lord your God. See, what's what's the sum of it all? All of the things that we've been studying over the past 18 weeks, what's the sum of it all? He's not looking for a religious performance. That's not what God is looking for. He wants your heart, child of God. He wants your heart. Is there sin in your life? If there's sin in your life, let it break your heart. Let it break your heart. Turn around and walk away from it. Disdain it like God does. You know, so many of us will turn away from sin because we know it's not pleasing to God, because we know it's no good for us, because we know it's no good for the people that love us the most, because we know because we know, but in the core of our hearts, we still glory in it. It's still attractive to us. It's still drawing us. No, disdain it. Hate it. You know how you do that? How do you do that? You know how you do that? You look at the cross. You look at the cross and you see what God has been willing to pay for your sin. You look at the cross and you realise But he just wants you to come to him. As Jim so often prays and says, God has given, heaven has given absolutely everything that heaven can give so that you can receive absolutely everything that you need. You need forgiveness, you need salvation, you need restoration, you need to be woken from your slumber. I'm talking to all of us. We need to be alive. We need to be alive. And we need to realize that he is gloriously merciful. Again, as he said, he is slow to anger. He's great in in kindness. You don't have to fear God. You can come to him at any time. He's not angry. He is gracious. He is merciful. Can I say it again? He is slow to anger. He's great in his kindness. And all he wants you to be is honest. He wants you to be honest with him. He wants you to open your heart to him. He wants us all just simply to get real. He wants the pretense to be gone. He wants the practice to be gone. He just wants to meet with you heart to heart. And that in and of itself is truly incredible. Let me tell you what I mean. Truly incredible. One of my favourite passages in the Old Testament is Isaiah chapter, chapter 1. He starts in verse 16. It's going to read it to you. Wash you. Make you clean. Put away the evil of your doings. From before my eyes, God says, cease to do evil. Verse 17. Learn to do well. Seek judgment. Relieve the oppressed. Judge the fatherless. Plead for the widow. And then he says this. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Those words, if we would just, we'd just stop and think about it. Look, if the Queen of England was to say to you, Dave, come on now, let's talk. Um, you probably wouldn't show up, would you? because that's not a good example. But if the most powerful person in the world, the most influential person who has ever lived, the most lauded person that has ever graced this earth, number one person in humanity was to say to you, come on over, let's have a chat. Let's talk about life. What an honour that would be, right? Right? Well, here is the God of heaven, the creator of the universe, the one who brought it all into being, the one who without there is nothing, nothing exists. He is the one, according to Colossians chapter 2, that tells us that holds the entire physical universe together. He holds it all together. Everything about you, the very atoms within your body are held together by the power of God. Without it, you simply don't exist Every breath that you have has been birthed in the heart of God so that you can live. And not just you, but every one of the seven plus billion people that live on this planet and always have lived on this planet, not to mention the rest of the physical universe that is out there. It's all held by him. And he says to you, Dave, come, let's have a chat. Get it? What an awesome thing that is. The God of heaven and earth simply looks at you, child, and says, Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins, here it is, and and you can't get through this. Because though your sins were red as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they were red as crimson, they shall be as wool. I read those verses and I hear that invitation of God. And I realise he's talking about the cross. I realise he's talking about what Jesus has done for me. I read those verses. Though your sins be red as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. My gaze is immediately lifted to Calvary's mountain and I see my Jesus. I see my Saviour upon the cross. I see him dying for me. I see his body brutalised. I see the blood flowing from his veins. And I realise that's what Isaiah was talking about. That's what he was talking about. But not only that, I also realise as I look at him upon the cross and he looks down upon not only those that crucified him, but he looks down upon all of humanity and he says, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. I know he's talking to me. He's talking to my sinful, rebellious heart. I know that's who he's talking to. Because I know that in those hours laid upon him was every sinful deed, every betrayal of innocence that has ever been carried out by humanity was poured into his perfect soul and as he bled, that bled washed us clean. I know that's what Isaiah was talking about. And so when I read it and I hear the God of heaven say to me, come on in, let's talk. You know what he's saying? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you think about me. It doesn't matter if you're angry at me. It doesn't matter if you think that it's unfair. It doesn't matter if you don't understand. It doesn't matter if you're struggling in life. He's just simply saying, come, let us reason together. Let's talk about this. This is the God of heaven. He calls you, every one of us, to come back to him. It's not too late. He wants you to again be hungry for him. He wants you back. He wants holiness in your heart. Enough of the apathy, don't you say? Enough of the apathy, and, and apathy, enough of the producing nothing of eternal value. Enough of just sitting in pews. Now it's whatever you want, Lord. It's whatever you want. you know what I really want? I really want that prayer that we pray at the start of every service to be true. I, I want that really to be my heart. Lord, I'm finished with careless living. I'm finished with careless living. I want a faith of substance that I can take out beyond the walls of this church to this world, and I can have a godly influence where you take me. Lord, I'm ready. I'm willing to exchange any self-indulgence for a self-denying, life-transforming Christianity. Lord, I am ready to live for you. That's the sum of it all. That's what these eighteen weeks have been about: personal revival, gospel living, the pleading of the apostle's heart. Here I am, God. Have Your way. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward, and uh, and let us gather around the communion table. You know, Daniel shared this morning at the first service, he shared a poem. And the poem was all about the recognition. It was an experience he had yesterday. It was all about the recognition that it's it's really, it's the little things that matter. It's the little things that matter. You know why? Because we can't, we really can't do the big things because God has done the big things, hasn't he? God's done the really big things. He created this earth, this heavens, the heavens and the earth. He placed mankind upon it. He laid down the boundaries for mankind and his creation. He watched mankind rebel and move away from him. He watched mankind seek to govern himself throughout all of his history. And, yeah, the time will come when God will say, time enough. But in the interval, he sent his son. He's done the big thing. He sent his son to die upon a cross, to shed his blood for you and I. That's the big things. Not only that he's done that, he's paid the price and having paid the price, he then sent his spirit into this world to woo your heart, to draw you near, to remove the scales from your eyes so that you can see the glory of God that you can see the wonder of His love for you, that you can see the power of His salvation and the hope of glory was birthed within your heart. He's done it all. He's done the big things. And, And we're called to do the little things. You know what they are? Every day, just to choose righteousness, just to choose holiness, to be godly, To love your neighbour as yourself. To accept his presence. To seek his leading. To fill your heart with his word. To allow him to be the God who saved you. The little things. The things that transform your life. The things that start the fire. That the spirit of God will fan into a blaze that will not only change your life, but to change the life of the ones that you love and to move into our society to change this world. Little things. Be a Christian. Let's pray. Father in heaven, oh Lord, we we thank you for who you are. And, And we thank you for the wonder that you've birthed in our hearts, that we might gather as your family and we might look upon, look upon you and your amazing grace, your incredible patience with us. But to hear the plea hear the cry I beseech thee by the mercies of God you'd present your bodies a living sacrifice wholly acceptable we hear the cry Lord I beseech thee that you would not receive the grace of God in vain Lord the sum of it all is is make us ready Father make us ready for your coming, make us ready for today. May we not be ashamed, oh God. Help us to take those baby steps towards you, Father. And if we're in this place, Lord, and we're walking away, or we don't know, or we're arguing, or we're dismissive, or we just don't care about this world out there, or if we think we are privileged and we're special, Oh, Lord, remind us we're not ready. Humble our hearts. Bring us back to Calvary's Mount to hear those victorious words of Christ, your Son, from the cross. It is finished. The price has been paid. The way has been made open into your presence, Lord. We want to know your presence. We want to feel your presence. We want to walk in the reality that we are accepted in the beloved and you cherish us, O God. Thank you, Lord, for this bread that represents your body. The very bread of life that we have partaken of. That it has become strength to us, eternal life to us. That, Lord, we might live each and every day. Being the hands and the feet and the words, the voice, the love of Jesus in this world. Let's take the bread together. Thank you, Father. Thank you for dying for us. For this cup to remind me that truly your grace is sufficient that truly you have done enough and you need not do any more thank you that you've washed us clean remind us every day of the incredible price that was paid Lord God paid Lord God set us free and help us to walk in that freedom we pray in Jesus name